I'm reading this morning from 1 Samuel chapter 30. David and his men reached Ziklag on the third day. Now the Amalekites had raided the Negev and Ziklag. They had attacked Ziklag and burned it and had taken captive the women and all who were in it, both young and old. They killed none of them, but carried them off as they went on their way. When David and his men came to Ziklag, they found it destroyed by fire and their wives and sons and daughters taken captive. So David and his men wept aloud until they had no strength left to weep. David's two wives had been captured, Ahinoam of Jezreel and Abigail, the widow of Nabal of Carmel. David was greatly distressed because the men were talking of stoning him. Each one was bitter in spirit because of his sons and daughters. But David found strength in the Lord his God. Then David said to Abiathar the priest, the son of Ahimelech, Bring me the ephod. Abiathar brought it to him, and David inquired of the Lord, Shall I pursue this raiding party? Will I overtake them? Pursue them, he answered. You will certainly overtake them and succeed in the rescue. David and the 600 men with him came to the Bezor Ravine, where some stayed behind, for 200 men were too exhausted to cross the ravine. But David and 400 men continued the pursuit. Good morning. If you've been following sports news this week, you may be aware of the Penn State football scandal, where a longtime assistant coach for Penn State, Jerry Sandusky, was convicted of sexually abusing at-risk boys. An independent report has blamed the school's administration and former coach and legend, Joe Paterno, for not turning Sandusky over to authorities or doing anything to stop him. Coach Paterno became Penn State's football coach in 1966, taking a small football program and turning it into one of the great programs in the country. He won a national championship, five undefeated seasons, won over 400 games, and built a legendary program. And he did it the right way, drilling hard work and discipline. He was a great football coach and a respected human being. Coach Sandusky was his defensive coordinator. And while Coach Paterno built the program, Coach Sandusky built a great and intimidating defense. The football program was Coach Paterno's kingdom, and the defense was Coach Sandusky's kingdom. Anytime we build a program like the Penn State football program, we have choices to make, and we have opportunities to decide what kind of program it's going to be. Coach Paterno and Penn State had a reputation for doing things right, for choosing to be respectable over winning at any cost. And over its history, the program appears to have chosen regularly to do things the right way. But in 1998, a boy told his mother that Coach Sandusky had molested him. The authorities were contacted, Penn State was kept in the loop, the charges were eventually dropped. In 2001, another assistant coach witnessed Coach Sandusky molesting a boy. He went and told Coach Paterno, who told one of the school's administrators, who told a couple of the other administrators, who all talked about what they should do and decided to do nothing. They told Coach Sandusky to get counseling, 
but nothing else was done. Nobody went to the police or did anything to care for these young boys. This was a great crisis moment for Penn State. They had an opportunity to decide what kind of program they were going to be. And they decided to protect the reputation of Coach Sandusky and of the program rather than to care for the boys that Sandusky was molesting. Now, Coach Paterno has died recently, but his reputation is in shambles. The school president and the athletic director and Coach Sandusky are all going to jail. When we build a life, whether we're building a kingdom like Yahweh is doing throughout 1 Samuel, or we are building our families, our places at work, or whatever we're building, we have opportunities to decide what kinds of lives and kingdoms we are building. Are we building lives that participate in God's kingdom work in the world? Or are we, like Penn State, building kingdoms to ourselves that we have to protect for ourselves? In our chapter today, David has opportunities to decide what kind of kingdom he is going to be a part of. And he has chances to decide what kinds of king he wants to be. Will he be a part of God's kingdom of grace? Let's pray. Father, we praise you. You are a gracious, loving, powerful God. You made us in your gracious image, and you ask us to participate with you in loving your creation. Jesus, we praise you. You are worthy because you graciously gave yourself for us. Spirit, we praise you. Thank you for being with us and for leading us to Christ. Father, we pray that you would teach us this morning more about your grace for us by your Spirit. Amen. Just by way of reminder, here's where we've been throughout the book of 1 Samuel. Yahweh is building a kingdom. He's developing a monarchy. Saul, the first king, has failed. He has rejected Yahweh. He oversaw the slaughter of Yahweh's priests, and he tried to kill David, who was Yahweh's next anointed king. Samuel has told him that someone else will be king, that Saul will not have a dynasty, and in chapter 28, when Saul brings the spirit of the dead Samuel um, up from the grave, that spirit of Samuel tells Saul that Saul is about to die today, he says. Today you will be with me, he tells Saul. Today is the very day of the action that we are looking at this morning. Chapter 30 takes place at the same time as chapter 31, where Saul actually goes and is killed in battle. So Saul is a failure, and he is about to die. But David, who's the next king, has been failing as a leader too, hasn't he? In chapter 27, he convinces himself that Saul is about to catch him and kill him. And so he runs where? To the Philistine lands, to Gath. He's been living in Ziklag, a Philistine city, and from there he's been raiding cities and killing people. In chapter 29, he begs the Philistines to let him fight with them against Israel in the same battle where Saul is about to die. David is not acting like a king of Israel when we get to chapter 30. He has forgotten Yahweh, his God. 
He has forgotten about the proper ways to treat people. And he is actually setting himself up as an enemy of Israel, where he should be king. And chapter 30, as Val just read, doesn't start out any better for David, does it? He is at a low point leading his men back to Ziklag, and then they return and find that the city is burned, their families are kidnapped, and everything they own is gone. David and his men weep until their strength is also gone. At that point, David's men begin to strengthen themselves on the idea of getting rid of David as their leader. He certainly hasn't been acting like a good leader, and it starts to make sense in their grief and anger to kill him. This is a major moment of crisis for David and for God's people. Who will step up and act like a king in Israel? Who really does have a heart like God's, like we hoped David did? What should a king of God's people do in a crisis like this? And how do we live in crisis? Where do we go when the world looks like it's falling apart? What about when it's not just your life, but God's activity in the world that seems to be in jeopardy? When what you thought was God's calling for you has turned out so wrong? Or when you are afraid that you have disqualified yourself from God's calling for your life? Anyone been there? How do we live faithfully in moments like that? How do we live in a Christ-like way, in crisis? I had a mini-crisis this week. It was certainly not any crisis like David. But I got up this Thursday, so, what, three days ago, with some time to work on my sermon for this morning. I read over the passage, I prayed over the time, and then I opened my computer to try and work on the sermon. And all I got was the spinny pinwheel of death, as we call it in my house. I get to the office and Hank tells me the computer's dead. Great. I was just trying to work on my sermon for this morning, Lord. (laughs) Why is my computer dead that had my sermon on it? I was tempted to live out of anxiety and even anger at that moment. So what do we do in many crises or big ones? What does David do this time? Verse 6 tells us that he strengthens himself on Yahweh, his God. So while David's men look for hope in new leadership, David strengthens himself in his God. In crisis, David finally begins to act like a true king of Israel. He seeks Israel's God, Yahweh. He finds strength in Yahweh. When my computer died this week, this time, by God's grace, I sat and prayed and found my strength in God. I was disappointed because my computer had died, but quickly discovered that it might make a pretty decent sermon illustration. (laughs) I had just been studying this passage, and I had been studying David's response in crisis, so I had a good example in front of me. This week, this time, I saw clearly the mini-crisis that I was in and saw how I needed to respond in light of God's truth. Again, only by God's grace. It's about 50-50 in sermon weeks for me. I also saw very quickly how God was giving me grace in the midst of the crisis. My wife, Grace, 
found ways to give me extra time and space to work on, on this message. Hank worked hard to see what he could do to save the computer. David recovered what had already been backed up. And I had already been studying the passage, so I had a good opportunity to respond well. And again, I ended up with a sermon illustration. Thank you, Lord. In a similar way, I think David sees God's grace in the middle of this crisis once he turns to look at what God is doing. Saul hasn't caught him for 15 years. Yahweh is making him king over Israel. As Tom showed us last week, David receives Yahweh's grace when the Philistine commanders refuse to let him fight with them against Israel. It is grace to David and his men that the Amalekite raiding party capture but do not kill their families. Remember, David has been raiding and killing everyone. So the Amalekites actually have been more gracious than David has. It is grace that David has 600 fighting men, and these are trained, hard fighters by now. When David seeks Yahweh, Yahweh graciously responds and tells David that David will have success when he tries to recover his family. And we will see more of Yahweh's grace to David throughout this chapter. David has received grace, despite the crisis in which he finds himself. In crisis, David strengthens himself on Yahweh and relies on his grace. And he starts to act like a guy who knows the ending. He knows that Yahweh wins, that David will be king in Israel, and that Yahweh will save the world through Israel. This is how a king of Israel acts in crisis. He finds strength in Yahweh and in Yahweh's coming victory. So let's read on to see what the rest of this passage has to tell us. So I'm going to read verses 11 to 20. Now they found an Egyptian in the field and brought him to David and gave him bread and he ate and they provided him water to drink. They gave him a piece of fig cake and two clusters of raisins and he ate. Then his spirit revived. For he had not eaten bread or drunk water for three days and three nights. David said to him, To whom do you belong, and where are you from? And he said, I am a young man of Egypt, a servant of an Amalekite. And my master left me behind when I fell sick three days ago. We made a raid on the Negev of the Carathites and on that which belongs to Judah, and on the Negev of Caleb, and we burned Ziklag with fire. Then David said to him, Will you bring me down to this band? And he said, Swear to me by God that you will not kill me or deliver me into the hands of my master, and I will bring you down to this band. When he had brought him down, behold, they were spread all over the land, eating and drinking and dancing because of all the great spoil that they had taken from the land of the Philistines and from the land of Judah. David slaughtered them from the twilight until the evening of the next day, and not a man of them escaped except 400 young men who rode on camels and fled. So David recovered all that the Amalekites had taken and rescued his two wives, but nothing of theirs was missing, whether small or great, sons or daughters, spoil or anything that they had taken for themselves, and David brought it all back. So David captured all the sheep and the cattle which the people drove ahead and of the other livestock, and they said, this is David's spoil. This section deals with David and his men as they seek to recover what's been taken from them. They run into people who are outside of Yahweh's covenant people. They are outside of the kingdom. 
How will the king and the kingdom deal with those outside of it? First, this young Egyptian man. David deals graciously and invitingly with the Egyptian. Remember, this young man was part of the raiding party that burned Ziklag and kidnapped his family. So obviously, the logical choice is to give him food and water and help revive his spirit, right? And invite him to be a part of your party, of your group. This young man ends up leading David and his men right to the Amalekite raiders. David is gracious and giving as Yahweh has been with David. And it ends up benefiting David and his men. Here again, Yahweh is gracious to David, giving him a guide to lead them straight to the enemy camp. All of Israel is supposed to be a blessing to the nations. This is the promise to Abraham, the promise of the prophets, and we know now that Christ is the fulfillment of this promise. We have been incorporated into the people of God because Yahweh always had a plan for the nations. In Yahweh's kingdom, all nations worship God together. The proper response of an Israelite king to an outsider is to offer grace and blessing. So David here is acting like an Israelite king by caring for this Egyptian. And he is acting like our great king, Jesus. But given David's grace with the Egyptian and God's grace for us, how do we make sense of David's total destruction of the Amalekites? He kills everyone he can get his hands on. Only 400 escape. Which is interesting because David only has 400 fighting men. I don't know what to make of that, but it's interesting. David kills a huge number of men, takes a huge spoil of victory. Why is this okay in this case, but he was to be gracious to the Egyptian? Well, we've seen the Amalekites before, haven't we? If you remember uh, in Exodus, the Amalekites attack Israel as they're leaving Egypt and headed to the Promised Land. And at that point, Yahweh tells Moses that he will completely wipe out the Amalekites. The Amalekites are a people devoted to destruction by Yahweh. And in chapter 15 of 1 Samuel, Samuel had commanded Saul, if you remember, to totally destroy the Amalekites in holy war. And Saul's disobedience in this case was an indication that he was not fit to be king. So David here is acting like the king that Saul was supposed to be. He is fighting Yahweh's holy war. And as the anointed king, David is an instrument of Yahweh's righteous judgment against Amalek. God's judgment on the Amalekites is not typical of how God deals with outsiders. God wants to see everyone brought into the kingdom, and so he always consistently offers grace. And we are called to offer grace. But God will also defeat his enemies, and he will judge, as he does here through David. So David is acting as an instrument of Yahweh's righteous judgment against Amalek. And that way he is like Christ, who is an instrument of righteous judgment against sin and death. At the cross, Christ defeats sin and crushes the serpent's head. And Christ defeats death when God raises him from the dead. And Christ will judge us all when he returns to reign. This is one of the roles of a king of Israel, to act as an instrument of God's righteous judgment. 
As we see in this section, David gains by defeating the Amalekites. Again, Yahweh is gracious to David. David started this chapter with nothing. No home, no family, nothing. And he finishes this chapter with more than he had before the raiders came. He has an awful lot all of a sudden. This is very, very clearly God's grace to David. So David acts like a true king of Israel by strengthening himself on Yahweh and relying on his grace, by learning to live as though he knows the ending, by treating the outsiders properly, by caring for the Egyptian, and by carrying out Yahweh's righteous judgment against the Amalekites. Because of God's grace, David has what he needs. A crisis, as David faced at the beginning, is never overwhelming to God. So next, David has another opportunity to decide what kind of king he's going to be. Again, David is not yet king, but he's about to be. He doesn't know it, but Saul is going to die on this day. He's not yet king, but he's acting like a king in this chapter. And the narrator has, again, already told us that Saul is about to be killed. So David is going to be king, and he is living like he knows that. So what will he do with success now? He faced one kind of crisis at the beginning of this chapter. Now he faces a crisis of success. What kind of king will he be? What kind of kingdom will Israel be under a King David? Let's read the rest of this chapter. When David came to the 200 men who were too exhausted to follow David, who had also been left at the brook Besor, and they went out to meet David and to meet the people who were with him, then David approached the people and greeted them. Then all the wicked and worthless men among them who went with David said, Because they did not go with us, we will not give them any of the spoil that we have recovered, except to every man his wife and his children, that they may lead them away and depart. Then David said, You must not do so, my brothers, with what the Lord has given us, who has kept us and delivered into our hand the band that came against us. And who will listen to you in this matter? As his share is who goes down to the battle, so shall his share be who stays by the baggage. They shall share alike. So it has been from that day forward that he made it a statute and an ordinance for Israel to this day. Now when David came to Ziklag, he sent some of the spoil to the elders of Judah, to his friends, saying, Behold, a gift for you from the spoil of the enemies of the Lord, to those who are in Bethel, and to those who are in Ramoth of the Negev, and to those who are in Jatir, and to those who are in Aroer, and to those who are in Sifmoth, and to those who are in Eshtemoah, and to those who are in Rakal, and to those who are in the cities of the Jeremelites, and to those who are in the cities of the Kenites, and to those who are in Hormah, and to those who are in Bor-Ashan, and to those who are in Athak, and to those who are in Hebron, and to all the places where David himself and his men were accustomed to go. Lots of names there at the end. <laughs> Those names, of course, are an indication of how generous David has been with the spoil, aren't they? As we've seen, Yahweh has been gracious with David throughout this chapter. His family is alive. Yahweh gives him grace. David and his men find an Egyptian willing to help them. They defeat the Amalekites and they get a bunch of new stuff. Yahweh has been gracious to David. 
As David points out in verse 23, you must not do so, my brothers, with what the Lord has given to us. When Yahweh is involved, there is always plenty of grace to go around. When he and his men return from their victory with their huge spoils, they run into 200 men, the 200 who couldn't keep up. Some reasonable but selfish men say that those 200 shouldn't get their share of the, shouldn't get any share in the spoils. After all, they didn't risk the same as the other 400. They can have their families back, but nothing else. Again, this is a significant moment for David. What kind of king is he going to be? Will he be a reasonable king? Controlled by the reality of the fact that sometimes there is not enough to go around and that those who earn it should get it? Or will he be some other kind of king? And what kind of king would that be? Uh, Commentator Walter Brueggemann says of this moment, David insists on equal shares for all. For now, the basis of distribution is not risk or victory or machismo, but just membership in the community. That's enough. David chooses to be a different kind of king, almost an unreasonable king. He's a king not controlled by the reality that there are limited resources, but a king given over to the greater reality that Yahweh is gracious. Let me repeat that. David is not a king controlled by the reality of limited resources, but a king grounded in the greater reality that Yahweh is gracious. It's true, sometimes there is not enough. That's reality. But reality is not all that there is. Our God fills life with greater reality than just reality. He fills life with grace. Reality is that Christ went to the cross and died a shameful and public death. The greater reality is that he was raised again and is seated at the right hand of the Father. Reality is that I'm a sinful guy who deserves whatever consequences I get. The greater reality is that God is full of grace and gives us blessings way above and beyond what we could ever deserve. Reality is that we are dust and we will die. The greater reality is that we are filled with the life of God and that we will be raised again from the dead in Him. Reality, the world is a mess and people are cruel to one another. The greater reality is that Christ is King and rules over all of it. Reality bites, but grace is a greater reality. Yahweh has been gracious to David and his men, and David chooses to be gracious even to the weakest of his men, just as he was gracious to the Egyptian. Everyone shares the same because Yahweh is gracious. There is always plenty to go around and no need for anyone to keep extra for themselves. Besides, this is all Yahweh's gracious provision for David anyway. We often think that we have earned it and we are entitled to what we've earned. David's 400 men did extra work. 
So they deserve extra pay, right? Well, that would suggest that this spoil is payment for work. Is it? We work hard for our pay. Extra work deserves extra pay. But David gives the same gift to those who fought and to those who didn't. More than that, the narrator notes that this becomes a statute and an ordinance to this day in Israel. In other words, David sets this example for a principle of sharing and gift that will be the basis for the economic system in his kingdom. That sounds crazy, right? Crazy, like Jesus' story in Matthew 20, where the workers who don't show up until the very end of the day get paid the same as those who worked all day. Is that fair? Is it just? Is it right that the first shall be last and the last shall be first? What do we do with that? What kind of economic system is that? And here with David, is that any way to set up economics for a kingdom? We think that those who do more deserve more. Even more, David goes on to give gifts to others throughout, the southern, throughout southern Israel, where he has been hiding and running for the last 15 years. He has a number of motivations. He wants to thank these people for helping him hide and run. He wants to help firm up his support among the people. So this is political. He knows he's going to be king, and so he wants to firm up his support. But this also just seems to be a, a gift of generosity and grace. David is recognizing here that all he has is a gracious gift from Yahweh. David may have done the work, but everything he has has been given to him from God's grace. David has nothing that does not come from Yahweh. And David knows that he doesn't deserve anything. He's been living like a Philistine in Philistine territory, raiding and killing people. What does he deserve? What do his men deserve? Everything that they have is from the Lord. David has received grace so he can give grace to others. Freely he has received, so freely he can give. We who are in Christ have received so much grace. The kingdom that David is setting up in this chapter is the same kingdom to that which we belong to in Christ. David set up a kingdom of grace where everyone shares equally, where risk, talent, and machismo and effort don't get you any more pay because all we have is grace anyway. Your job, your family, your home, your food, it's grace. Your salary, benefits, retirement, grace. Your friends, your church, it's grace. Everything is grace, given to us by a gracious God. So what kind of king does David want to be? And what kind of kingdom is Yahweh establishing in David? This is a kingdom of grace, where you don't get what you deserve. You get a whole lot more. David is a king who is fully aware of the grace he has received and who gives to others graciously. We who are in Christ are incorporated into this kingdom of grace. 
in Christ, we have received grace way beyond what we could deserve or imagine. Our sins have been nailed to the cross with Christ, and He has paid the penalty that we deserved. And we know that Christ is already victorious, and His glory, His kingdom, and His victory will be revealed when He returns. If you're not a part of the kingdom of grace, I invite you to seek Christ and to acknowledge Him as Lord. He loves you and He wants to give you His grace. How do we live out the kingdom of grace today in our lives? I have four examples. First, in crisis, we can strengthen ourselves on the triune God. As David strengthened himself on Yahweh, we can gain strength from Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. The Father who sent the Son to save us. The Spirit is with us to strengthen and encourage us. God has graciously acted for us. When we find our strength in God, we can live out His grace in our lives. So that's one. Strengthen ourselves on God. Two, we can look for and see the grace that God gives to us every day. One way we can do this is by the prayer that my dad mentioned from up here a few weeks ago, the prayer of examine. Grace and I do this sometimes in the evenings by just asking each other, where was God today? What was he up to in our lives? If we can be disciplined to be watchful for where God is working and giving us his grace, we can retrain our minds and our hearts to stop listening only to reality, the reality of our needs and desires, and instead listen to the greater reality of God's grace in our lives. That's part of living in the kingdom of grace. Our minds and hearts living in the greater reality of God's grace, which influences how we participate then in reality. So that's two. One is strengthen ourselves on God. Two, look for God's grace every day. And three, we can live like people who know the ending. David remembered that he was going to be king, and that gave him confidence to seek Yahweh and to lead his men when he heard from Yahweh. We also are a people who know the ending, and that should give us confidence in our lives. We know that Christ will return in glory and set all things right. We know that death is a horrible reality, but that resurrection is a greater reality. We know that our financial troubles are real and difficult, but the greater reality is that God is always giving us grace and has provided community, love, and support for us in gracious ways. We know that our sin is devastating and sometimes shameful, but we also know that the greater reality is that God in Christ has paid the penalty for sin. And so we can face our sin and its consequences with confidence and faith. We know that others sin against us, but that the greater reality is that God has given us grace, and so we can live by freely giving grace to others. And number four, we can give graciously to others inside and outside the kingdom. We can forgive when others sin against us and mistreat us. We can give our time and money to those in need. We have been given so much that we can even give to our enemies. Our lives are filled with grace. 
And so in the kingdom of God, we can give grace. David decided that he would be a part of what Yahweh was doing in the world, that he would be a king who shared God's grace with others. We also have been given grace upon grace. We do not need to hold on to things for ourselves because everything is a gift. So, as fellow members of the kingdom of grace, I invite you to find ways to live grace in your lives. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the example of David here in this chapter. We thank you that even though he had been running and living like a Philistine, you give him your grace. And he is an example of strengthening himself on you and finding grace and living grace to others. We thank you that you've invited us to be a part of this same kingdom of grace. And we pray that you would help us to live it out in our lives. We love you, Father. We thank you especially for Jesus, for his life and death and resurrection, and for the resurrection life that you offer to us in him. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.